Welcome to Eminent Americans, a podcast about the people, trends, platforms, and conflicts that constitute the American intellectual scene. This is episode four of the podcast, which I am calling the Facebook episode. So a few years ago, I got an email from a grad school friend of mine, someone I hadn't communicated with for probably a decade or so, and he was reaching out to me because my guest on the podcast today, Corey Robin, had said something nice about a book that I wrote on his Facebook page. So this is what my friend wrote about seeing this. He wrote, quote, when Corey Robin is praising you on Facebook, you've arrived, my friend. And he was being funny, but he was also just saying a true thing in two senses. Corey Robin is a big deal on the intellectual left in America. And for the better part of a decade, from about 2012 to 2019 or so, Corey's Facebook page was one of the most vital and interesting spaces on the American intellectual left. It was arguably the place to go for many years if you wanted to stay in touch with what people on the left were talking about, who the key players were, what the key debates were. To even get Corey to respond seriously to a comment you made on one of his posts was to get a little thrill, a little hit of dopamine, to feel as though you were part of something larger. To be praised by Corey in the main text of one of his posts, as I was that one glorious time, was to feel like you were a made man or woman. So that's part of what we're going to talk about today. How did that come about? What was it like to be the guy at the center of that? What were the hot issues in those years? How did it end? What lessons did he take from the experience? And also, where is the left now? Is it somewhere new? Is it nowhere? Corey is a professor at Brooklyn College and the author of three books, or arguably three and a half books, the first of which was Fear, the History of a Political Idea, the second and third of which were The Reactionary Mind, Conservatism from Edmund Burke to Sarah Palin, and then in its revised version, Conservatism from Edmund Burke to Donald Trump. And then most recently, The Enigma of Clarence Thomas, a biography of the Supreme Court Justice. Corey has written for The New Yorker, The New York Review of Books, Jacobin, among many other places. Back in 2017, I wrote this about Corey and his most influential book. The Reactionary Mind has emerged as one of the more influential political works of the last decade. Robin himself has become, since the book's publication, one of the more aura-laden figures on the intellectual left. Paul Krugman cites him in the book periodically in his New York Times columns and on his blog. Robin's Facebook page, which he uses as a blog and discussion forum, has become one of the places to watch to understand where thinking on the left is. Another key node of the intellectual left is Crooked Timber, a group blog of left-wing academics to which Robin is a longtime contributor. And another is Jacobin, a socialist magazine that often republishes Robin's blog posts, sans edits, like dispatches from the Oracle. So, Corey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for squeezing us in among your crush of interviews about Clarence Thomas. Oh, thanks for having me, and thank you for that way, way too generous introduction. (laughs) Well, I make myself seem important by making you seem extra important. So it's really about me, not you. So the goal of this blog is not to be topical, but it happens to be the case that I'm catching you at a moment when you're an expert on a very topical thing. So I just want to kind of pause there for a few minutes, which is... So there's all this stuff going on with Clarence Thomas, and it turns out this very long and deep history of, I I was going to say contributions, but that suggests that it's to sort of a political campaign or something like that. It seems like it's just money directly sort of mainlined into his bank account or something like that. Can you tell me quickly what that story is? And then I guess how it speaks to your own biography of Thomas and how you understand him. Yeah, I mean, in brief, Thomas has been getting gifts, 
quote unquote, from most prominently from Harlan Crow, who I believe is actually from Texas, a real estate developer. And they are, I mean, gifts is a, uh, a small word. I mean, they're extraordinarily extravagant gifts, uh, trips on planes and yachts. And Thomas has not been reporting them. So it's a, it's a twofer, basically, of both gifts. I should say, we've known that Thomas has been the recipient of these types of things for quite some time. There was a big piece on this in the LA Times in the early aughts. My personal favorite gift that he got was $1,200 worth of tires from a businessman in Omaha. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and it's not, it's not against policy, right? It's not against the law for him to receive these, but there are rules about reporting them. Is that right? I mean, it's against sort of uh, good judgment and, and, and good taste and the appearance of impartiality, but it's, it's, it's allowable. Is that right, is that right at a baseline? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, against, you know, it's definitely against the judicial code of ethics that Congress imposed upon all the judiciary, except it can't impose it upon the Supreme Court because they're co-equal branches of government. But the court essentially you know, imposed it upon itself. Um, it's not good. Uh, it's, it's just, it's not good. Um, how does this make me think about um, Thomas? I mean, the irony for me about this, this scandal is that Thomas, if you read his jurisprudence and some of his speeches, has been providing a blueprint for precisely this kind of thing for 20 years, if not more now. He has been at the forefront of, on the court of, uh, essentially, and, and I'm, I'm not even really putting words in his mouth, but essentially influence peddling as the practice of American democracy. The only difference, of course, is that in this case, he's a judge as opposed to an elected official. But this has been his vision for quite some time, is the people who have the most money have the most access, have the most speech. And to try to constrain that is to constrain the practice of American democracy. It's interesting when I think about your project when it comes to Thomas, at least in, in terms of how it played out and in, you know, interviews you've done and in the book, of course, too, is, was part of your case was to make people take him seriously as an intellectual, as a jurist. And I think in ways that actually were not always well received amongst people who generally were, you know, fans of yours or readers of yours or conversation partners. This is kind of an interesting intersection of that. I'm trying to think of how that plays out, right? On the one hand, if you just viewed your project as like legitimizing him in some sense, which I'm not sure how that's how you would characterize it, but that's probably how it was perceived in some respects. This cuts against that. On the other hand, people are taking him very seriously now. It's not the image of Thomas as a kind of empty suit, as a dum-dum, as somebody who had nothing to say, who never spoke from the bench during oral arguments. It's not that, but it's also not something that sort of burnishes his credentials as a serious jurist. Yeah, up until very recently, up until about two years ago, most people paid no attention to Thomas at all. And the characterizations that you just trotted out were the ones that people relied upon. Not a very intelligent man, doesn't speak from the bench because he doesn't know what to say, Scalia's puppet, and some nastier things than that. In the last two years, because of the changing composition of the court in the last three years, Thomas now has a lot of power. And his power is not simply just that there are six conservatives on the court, it's that he takes a very hard line on things. And so people do have to take him more seriously. And so it's interesting that now the, the line that I see on him a lot is that he's a con artist, 
con man and so forth, which of course implies that he has some degree of intelligence, which was denied for many years. In terms of my own work, I would say, you know, the purpose of the book was definitely not at all to legitimize Thomas, unless people think my writing on the right in general is intended to legitimize them. Because I'm, I've always been interested in what are the ideas, how do they exercise close reading of their texts and so forth. And he just seemed like somebody who had really gone under the radar. And now people are grappling with him now that he's where he is. So I kind of want to go, go back, not quite um, to the beginning of your existence, but maybe to the beginning of your sort of political intellectual existence. When did you start to come into your own or even think of yourself uh, as a leftist or liberal or political thinker? And what were the sort of formative influences on that? On that? He became interested in politics in high school. I think like many people, I had a very good set of teachers. This was in the early 1980s. So it was a pretty constrained period of political life. And if you were liberal minded, I wouldn't even say liberal, uh, because that was already a bit of a dirty word. Things like the New Republic loomed large. You wanted to be thought of as serious and judicious and have a careful temperament and so on and so forth. From high school through college, where I started reading more in the radical tradition, I had a wonderful professor named Sheldon Wolin. I was a political theorist who really introduced me to Marx and the Frankfurt School. Intellectually, my politics expanded, but in practice, I was still the same kind of constrained person of the 1980s. It wasn't really until graduate school that things really changed for me. I got very involved in the teaching assistance union in graduate school. I was very involved in a bunch of strikes, and that really, for me, was the politically formative and, 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 as it turns out, intellectually formative experience where I really began to see certain themes that I've written about quite a bit, the persistent hangover of domination. My dissertation was on the politics of fear. At the time, in political science, nobody talked about things like fear. We were talking about deliberative democracy and things of that sort. So I became very interested in the instruments of domination and power, and not in the crude way that power is exercised, but also not in the kind of what I think of as the more fantastical ways that the academic left talks about power. Yeah. So a, a kind of old-fashioned n- an understanding of power, which I feel like people on the left have consistently um, undervalued. It just uh, Sorry, it just makes me think of one thing. It's one of the strange experiences I have, just jumping ahead to the Trump era, when people talk about fascism and authoritarianism and all the rest of it, because that was my, I was talking about these very repressive authoritarian modes of power that can exist in a liberal democracy for a very long time. And it seemed like a lot of people just sort of happened upon it once Trump came into power. So that was really my journey. <laughs> so I really want to dwell on the stuff, on the stuff Yale. at Yale and the, the grad school unionization stuff. I'm younger than you, but not that much younger. And so I have some sort of some overlap of experience. So go back to the 80s and sort of coming of age politically. So you were a New Republic reader. I remember this was my introduction to sort of the journalistic left. I went off to college at Yale, and I think I overlapped with you some when you were in grad school. And I grew up in a very left-wing family, but but didn't have a, any kind of real intellectual grounding. It wasn't like our household was populated with Descent. Descent or the New Left Review or something like that. It just had a sort of more amorphous, vague attachment 
left. I went off to college. I decided I wanted to be politically informed. Not knowing what that might mean, I asked my dad if he would get me a subscription to Time Magazine, which horrified oh, my left-wing father. father. <laughs> uh, I don't think Time Magazine at that point was what, I think he saw some of the ghost of Henry, Henry Luce kind of looming over it or something like that. I don't think that's what Time was. But anyway, it horrified him. He said, okay, I'll get you a subscription to Time Magazine, but only if I can also get you a subscription to The Nation. Magazine. Wow. So, so then I started getting Time, time in The Nation, and that was, and my, that real was my real introduction. And my sense of... What the, what the landscape of the intellectual, of the intellectual left, left was in that period. So now we're, so now we're talking kind of 90s. Kind of 90s. Um, but, but, but I'm not sure it had changed that much over the previous, you know, 20 years, 20 years or, something or something like that. that. Was that you had the Nation, you had the Nation magazine, magazine, you had the New Republic, you had Mother Jones, you had Progressive. You had dissent over in the slightly different space. And those were the bounds of my kind of awareness of what that landscape was. And I'm curious, you were a little bit ahead of me. When did you get to Yale as a grad student? Uh, 1990. What were the publications? Where would one go in 1990, let's say, or 1993, to understand what the American left even was in a sort of journalistic intellectual sense? You know, I'm probably not the right person to ask that because I think unlike a lot of people who are either on the academic left or think of themselves on the left. I mean, I really feel like my education in the left came from the union and I wasn't looking to magazines and periodicals for that kind of thing. I was looking somewhat to my more academic work in scholarship, that's true. I read The New Republic. I read a whole bunch of stuff in the 1980s because I wanted to be a journalist for a while there and then I decided I didn't. But I wasn't really reading magazines to find out what was going on. And, and I do think that's somewhat different, particularly for younger leftists whom I talk to who are millennials, for instance. And it's fascinating to me because, like you, they were reading magazines, slightly different ones. They were reading New Left Review and things like that. But yeah, for me, it wasn't the space of magazines so much. I, I think I was, if I was interested in a magazine, it was because of its intellectual or literary quality. I wasn't looking for political instruction. So let's talk about, let's talk about Yale and the grad student, GISO, and I'm trying to remember what that stands for. What does GISO stand for? Graduate, um, graduate employee, graduate, graduate, graduate employees and students organization. I couldn't, okay. I, it's the sign so, of how old I am. I couldn't remember. So I kind of have a theory, or I had a theory at one point, which I never sort of pursued, but that the whole fight over unionizing the grad students at Yale uh, was a kind of surprisingly important movement in the larger context of the recent history of the American left. I, I couldn't document that in any sense. It was just an intuition that I had. But before we get into that, tell me, were you there at the, at the inception of it? What's the story in brief? of the emerge of, of, and I guess, ultimate success, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. They just won their first election this year, uh, which is interesting. We're talking a 30-year fight. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. one of the longest labor struggles in American history. Actually, GISO began as something called TA Solidarity in the late 80s before I, before I was there. They formalized themselves as a union in about my first year, actually, the end of my first year, so spring of 1991. And I was initially very opposed to the whole thing. And that, I think, gives you a... I think I was quite typical. I was sort of liberal-ish, liberal leftish in my intellectual profile, for lack of a better word, but not willing to do a damn thing that smacked of activism. And I think for many of us in that generation, activism seemed like intellectual, it seemed stupid, 
all kinds of things. It was a, just a very distasteful kind of a thing. But it became very clear, unions have this saying, you probably know from your family, the, the boss is the best organizer. And there was a whole crew of people running Yale at the time, from Benno Schmidt to Donald Kagan to Jerry Pollitt, who it seemed like they were hired just to turn people into graduate student unionists. And it became very clear that if you were serious about ideas, if you were serious about the university as a place to study and work and teach, that you had to join the union, that it was the administration that was were, was trying to impose all what we would now call neoliberalism, all these cost efficiency measures to get people in and out faster with less money and be more productive. It's a classic story of a kind of a guild group of workers being turned into f- factory workers is a little too fancy for what was going on, but routinizing and regularizing the work in ways that felt antithetical to the enterprise. And so it did, it became a very big thing. I should say the Yale unions are one of the reasons why you may have the intuition you do about the impact. It's not just because it's Yale. The unions at Yale are very specific. They are really strong organizing unions. Now, people use that word and they throw it around all the time, organizing. It's become, you know, Barack Obama was an organizer, supposedly. Um, but the Yale unionists, they really take it seriously. This is, I'm, trying, I'm to trying to remember, local 34 and 35, 35 is that right? Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, that's right. And, and they have a long history of militancy and building, um, really building grassroots leadership structures. We were very intensively based in every academic department. And the goal was always developing leadership in every department. That could get us into a lot of trouble because it was a union that had very high expectations of its members. This was not a passive sign a card and you're done. This was something that the second you showed any interest, people were recruiting you to do more. And even more so, the second you showed any kind of opposition, if you showed demonstrated any kind of leadership in the department, people wanted to talk to you because we understood that the department, you know, the department would never go along with it unless you went along with it. And so it was a very formative experience. I ended up taking a leave of absence and working full time, which was essentially a double job. It was 80 hours a week. And I loved it. It really changed my life and changed the way I viewed things. To my sort of hypothesis that it was a kind of important movement in the broader kind of American left, I guess I'm trying to think of what data points I have. I think you're a data point. We can argue about your significance. You're a well-known figure in the kind of American intellectual left. You were formed by the union. So there were other grad students who went out to become, as grad students do, to become faculty at different institutions, but I think are writing about things from a perspective that's probably informed by their experience in that unionization fight. There was, and I'm thinking of one, but I think there were others. I mean, I had Brendan Walsh was a friend and he went off and became a union organizer. I feel like there were others, the name that's coming to mind, but I think he was an undergraduate. Nick Allen, I think was an undergraduate who was influenced, was he an undergraduate? Who was influenced by his involvement in that overall struggle, who I think is an organizer as well. Nick was in my very first class I taught at Yale, actually. I think the number somebody once came up with was about uh, upwards of 100 people left Yale and became part of HERE, which was then the International Union. And it's funny because on the one hand, that doesn't sound like a lot from one perspective. 
from another perspective, it's a lot. I mean, it's a lot from the perspective of people who are coming through Yale. But I even imagine if you went out and sort of surveyed where those people were within the broader union movement or within the sort of American left, what you would find at this point, 20, 30 years later, is that a lot of them are in positions of leadership at various entities. So that's pretty, that's fascinating. Has anybody written that? And that would be an interesting dissertation or book or something like that. I don't, th- I don't think so. But just to give you a sense of how important something like that can be, the story that the clerical workers organized in the 1980s as, or, as Local 34, and it was a very big strike in 1984, and they won the union and, at Yale. I knew that at the time. I don't remember that story anymore yet. About, it was kind of the nine to five story. And the people who were at the sort of top levels of leadership there went on to um, HERE and went to Nevada and helped organize the casino workers there and led to, I think, one of the longest strikes in American history, the Hotel Frontier in the late 90s. Nevada is now a blue state. And those people helped through the, the labor union, and a lot of its blueness comes from those that casino workers union in, in Las Vegas. The ways these things happen are really profound. And yeah, and as you say, it's like on the one hand, it doesn't seem like a lot of people, but you mentioned Brendan Walsh. He is now in Arizona. He is part of a whole team that's trying to turn Arizona into a blue state, and they had their first big success in the last presidential election. So these things really do happen. And then, of course, there's the academic, people who become academics, and that continues to generation, generations past, well past my own. Uh, I think it's one of the sort of not fully articulated premises of my blog, and of course I'm not the first person to observe this, but that, that most of these world, a lot of these worlds when you're talking about influence and intellectual history are much smaller than people imagine they are, right? You imagine a nation the size of the United States and you think about something like the left, which obviously is just an important strand in the history of almost any country in the world. But And so you imagine on a country of 330 million people or 350 or whatever we are now, that when you're talking about something like that, you must be talking about tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. And I think the reality is when you're talking about lines of intellectual influence it's, it's maybe it's a few hundred or something like that. These are ultimately re- relatively small world. And that's and I guess that's come up to your Facebook page when I said something in my intro, like this was the place to go. On the one hand, it's hard to believe how could one guy's Facebook page be a place to go for the entire American left? On the other hand, that seems totally plausible to me. Where else do people go? How many people are we talking about? And when you're talking about something like grad student unionization at Yale, the idea that it could be formative in the larger context of the American left seems totally plausible to me. And one of the reasons why it's really interesting to talk about these things and how they play. So so let me bring you up to the Facebook page. So let's quickly move to that. So when do you graduate? You graduate from Yale in late 90s? Yeah, 1999. Okay. And then where do you land? Brooklyn College, my first and only job. And... And then I think your book, Fear, which I assume was adapted from your dissertation, yeah. comes out in 2006. Between that, you landed at Brooklyn College in 2000, you said, between 99 and 2006. Are you basically doing the assistant professor thing and just working on publishing articles, adapting your dissertation? Are you involved in left-wing activities as well in those years? Yeah, there was something came out of the, there was a big teaching at Columbia on intellectuals and workers, and it was called, the group that came out of it was a terrible name, was called Sausage, 
scholars, artists, and <laughs> sco- scholars, artists, and writers for social justice. Yeah, I remember. Okay, so it's funny the acronym, right? I remember S A W S J. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So I was involved in that, and it shows you how things have changed so dramatically in the last twenty years. Um, we were still trying to figure out how to get you know academics and intellectuals and artists to support the labor movement. This year, of course, some of the biggest activity in the labor movement has been from academic workers. From the moment I got to New York, in addition to my academic work, I was really concentrated on um, writing for more non-academic venues. And that was part of the great thing of being in New York was that they were immediately accessible. So that was pretty much what I was doing. So who were you writing for at that point? So my very first publication was with Newsday. I don't know if you remember this, but... Yeah, kind of. I mean, that was sort of the liberal counterpart to... Post, right? Or was that the Daily News? That was the Daily News. But Newsday was what was significant was that they had a great literary editor, Lori Muchnick, and she was interested in creating a great book review section, which she did. And a lot of people wrote for it. And so that's how I got started, just writing book reviews. And one thing led to another. And I wrote for Lingua Franca, I wrote for The Times. I just ended up writing for a lot of different places. And I think it wasn't until 2004, 2005 that I got my stride of just writing longer, more intellectual essays, not just quick reviews and shorter articles, but review essays, which is is what I really like to do. And you were doing those for who, primarily, for all those places you mentioned? At some point, you were writing for Salon. I know, I think you ended up writing for The Nation at various points. In the aughts, I would say I was really mostly doing a lot of them for the London Review of Books. And those essays actually became The Reactionary Mind, my second book, because this was the middle of the Bush era. And I was really interested. I think a problem that faced many people when Trump was elected, you know, where did this... People forget, but George W. Bush was really thought to be, at the time, a real departure from conservatism. There was this kind of full-throated embrace of imperialism, we forget that even though he was such an establishment figure, he had this kind of bad boy, anti-establishment reputation. In fact, I think Fred Barnes, remember him? He had a book called Rebel in Chief. And this is the way, you know, he was presented as somebody who was unlettered, just not your typical mainstream Republican. I was interested in how does this relate to a more traditional understanding of conservatism. And out of these articles came that whole project. For what it's worth, I'm endlessly infuriated by this sort of rehabilitation of George Bush kind of vis-a-vis Trump, right? Because temperamentally, he's not as offensive to the sensibilities as Trump is. And Trump is a departure in other ways, but the sort of retrospective burnishing of George W. Bush's reputation is just a sort of trap. Well, I mean, it, I mean, this happens all the time. I mean, actually, last night, my, my child is working on, has decided they, they want to do something called Watergate the Musical. And <laughs> so we were going through Rick Perlstein's book, Nixon Land, which he wrote during the Bush era. And, you know, every single thing we hear about Trump, you can find almost a verbatim sentence in the book on Nixon. So when Reagan comes along, Nixon got rehabilitated and then Reagan was rehabilitated by Bush and then Trump comes along and rehabilitates Bush. It's a whole progression that happens all the time. Do you think my emphasis is probably too exclusively on publication? So maybe let me broaden this, but if we're thinking about the aughts and thinking about if you had to do a kind of network diagram 
of the left in the sense of where the sort of conversations are happening about what's going on, how to strategically how to respond to the Bush administration, but also just how conceptually to think about it. How do you begin to draw that network diagram? What are the nodes of it? Where are the conversations happening? It. What are the places and spaces that are helping people to formulate their thinking about where America is and how the left needs to and should respond? I mean, it's a tough question. I think first there was the kind of whole net roots explosion, and that really spanned politically the gamut. I think Ezra Klein started out on net roots and Matt Iglesias too, so that's a kind of more centrist mainstream thing. But there were a lot of people further to the left, and we have to be careful because when we say further to the left, I don't think they were necessarily fully developed a kind of critique of political economy or anything like that. These are people who really want to push the Democratic Party to take a more confrontational approach with the Republicans and not to do the kind of bipartisan comedy thing. I do think they had an influence insofar as they got very jazzed up by the various campaigns and they developed networks and so on and so forth. So I think that whole space is important. And I don't know where this was happening, but it really exploded during Occupy. There was clearly a kind of a less noticed area of socialist political economy ferment um, that was happening, where people were really, you know, trying to think through some of these fundamental things. And I think long term, that's been probably the much more interesting area of development and how and where that happened, oh, I wasn't a part of it at the time, but just from talking to a lot of people younger than me and younger than you, they were definitely following these things and really a part of it. And it's interesting because from my perspective, there was a brief moment in the 90s where it had opened up with... The WTO, right? Like the anti-globalization stuff. Exactly. And then it was really, it seemed like it had been completely shut down by 9-11 and the war on terror and they are kids at the time in high school who are reading all this stuff and will be going to college and during the Bush years and then be in graduate school during Occupy and write dissertations. And suddenly you have a much thriving, bustling intellectual infrastructure that is just a lot richer today in a lot of ways, um, which is fascinating. You know, like I look back and I think, what the hell were we all writing in thinking in the 90s. To me, it feels like a lost generation. I wonder if one were to really do a sort of close-up history, whether you could draw lines in terms of specific people from those anti-globalization protests of the 90s to Occupy. Yeah. Like specific people who were there in the 90s and then showed up again at Occupy, or was it just this totally diffused but somehow connected individuals in different spaces who were having a kind of similar experience, and so it coalesced in a way. I think people do write that story, as you said, both you and I have that in our mind, that it's like the things happening in the late 90s, it's shut down by 9-11, and then it burdens up again in Occupy. I was thinking about this before we talked, What, which is when I go back to those early Netroots era, the blogs that come to mind are like Daily Codes and Talking Points Memo and things in that space, which are precisely what you said. These are not like old school left wing, you know, philosophically, ideologically 
blogs. They're sort of what we would now call resistance blogs yeah, or something right, like right. that, right? They were angry about the 2000 election and the perception that it was stolen by the Bush people. They were angry about the sort of Clintonite direction of the Democratic Party. But they were attracted to figures like actually fairly centrist figures like Howard Dean because he articulated that resistance, but he was not philosophically left. Was, I don't even actually know what an early Netroots left. They must have been there. I just don't actually know what they were. Whether they- like, for instance, Doug Henwood had this thing called the Left Business Observer, um, which was a, definitely an internet phenomenon. It was kind of an early Facebook sort of thing. It was a moderated discussion forum. And those were really serious. Is that what the Left Business Observer was? It was just a what? It was a publication, but he created, attached to the publication, a kind of internet community. I did. And, and also with its focus on political economy, I think, you know, was a, a place where people could go. The last thing I should mention when you were saying mapping things out was in the 90s when I was at Yale, there was a group of graduate students and undergraduates who were involved in anti-prison organizing. And in the long term, that group definitely stayed the course throughout the aughts. And of course, has been at the forefront of what has become a much more visible and powerful, um, uh, both political movement, but also in- intellectually, it really changed the shape of a lot of academic work in in American studies and history and sociology, really focusing on you know, policing and prisons. So people like Ruthie Gilmore was you know, a, a really important figure for for these younger students, and that has continued over the years. But I'm just interested in general also how sort of ideas that are germinated in the academy often, yeah. not always, but often end up trickling out in interesting ways into the larger political discourse. That's much more visible now with the rise of the social media and the ways in which academic concepts and language have very tangibly influenced that space. And I'm thinking, too, of what you said about having been somebody who wrote about power and domination and certain kinds of authoritarian tendencies in liberal democracies early on confronting the sort of Trump era and the ways in which both I think that positioned you to be somewhat influential in discussion around that, but it also put you in tension with the dominant discourse because you actually had a sort of coherent philosophy of these things and you're dealing with a lot of people who are just reaching for they're reaching for fascism, right? They're reaching for analogies that might not be particularly historically informed precisely because they don't have right. a sort of coherent, continuous history of how these things play out. Let's get to the Facebook page, because that's the ostensible topic of this discussion. How did that come about? And I assume that initially you just joined Facebook like the rest of us did. And, you know, we're posting pictures of, you know, what you ate or your kids or something like not that. Not really, actually. My wife had Facebook, which she got after our child was born, because when you're up late at night, what are you going to do but go on social media while you're waiting for your kid to start screaming in, in a half hour? And I would go on her page and look at stuff, and she really got annoyed with me. And then I had the reactionary mind come out and began blogging, and, and my wife really urged me to get a Facebook page. But she had, um, you know, what in retrospect, it was kind of early adopt adapter, you know, I had said, no, this is a really good way of getting conversation going and doing what you do on a blog. But it's a much easier medium to deal with. Um, and so from the very, I think pretty much from the very get go, I was, um, in fact, I definitely was from the very get go, 
just using it as a way of extending the sort of blog principle, which I was a late adopter to. Time-wise, so Reactionary Mind comes out when? 2011. 2011. And then is that when you set up, what's your website, CoreyRobin.com? And then you're blogging on that. And then in 2011 or 2012, you set up your Facebook page as a kind of adjunct of that. And soon it became the conversation migrated to Facebook. My sense is partially because it's just technologically a a lot easier medium, or it was, it felt like you could have a conversation in real time. There was a whole, oh yeah, this is kind of funny. It was the Obama handling of the debt ceiling crisis in 2011. And we had a explosive conversation about this on Facebook with lots of different people and Adolf Reed and Katha Pollitt and Doug Henwood going at it back and forth. And I think I just literally took the whole conversation and then posted it on the blog. I think I got everybody's permission for it. And, and you know, it was fun. Okay. So you posted something on it. Yeah. One thing led to another. And then you take that and post it on the blog. CoreyRobin.com. It's not literally viral, but that was kind of the first thing in your memory that kind of kind of instantiated your blog as a place that these things happen. I'm a little reluctant to say mine was the place where these things happened. I do think other not people... the only place, but let's say a place where yeah. these things happen. Yeah. Because I knew a lot of people on the left, I knew more mainstream liberal types. It was a way of getting you know those people talking to each other. Um, it's kind of funny in retrospect get those people talking to each other now. You know. <laughs> These people don't talk to each other at all. And I think in retrospect, it was just the range of people who were talking to each other, both more influential journalists and just academic specialists who would know something about the labor movement or know something about Wisconsin history. I was kind of bouncing around on, on your Facebook page, sort of the archives, and I kept the list. I'm looking, and this is by no means exhaustive, but Lauren Berlant was on there, Matt Karp, Annette Gordon-Reed. Doug Henwood, Jeet Here, Freddie DeBoer, Scott Lemieux, Jedediah Purdy, Jody Dean, Rick Perlstein, Greg Grandin, Liza Featherstone, Samuel Moyne, Tim Lacey, Baskar Sunsra, you know, Kianga Yamada Taylor, Gideon Lewis Krause. That's just some of them. And I mean, that's, we're talking about sort of some of the key players in the sort of literary, intellectual, journalistic left of the last, you know, 10 or 20 years. Yeah, as I recall, with a couple of exceptions, everybody seemed like they were interested in the dialogue, like everybody wanted to be part of the conversation. And so it wasn't the kind of preening, personal or political that you sometimes see in these things. I think there was just a real desire to connect and figure things out. And yeah, it it was great. And you said it wasn't the only place, and you can let me know if you remember others, but I do wonder whether, like, when you think about how these things coalesce, you know, it's a confluence of forces, right? I mean, you weren't an early adopter of Facebook, but you may have been a relatively early adopter of Facebook for these purposes, right? On top of which, as you said, you are somebody who knows a lot of people, so they're seeing your posts. Maybe nobody else who's occupied a similar space to you had done this. And then also you were pretty active to to maintain something like this. You have to be somebody who's willing and able to just keep it going, to post all the time, to not just post something, but respond in the comments, to maybe once in a while link to somebody. And then sometimes you bring something over to your blog, which is another platform. I mean, all of these things have to sort of 
line up in order for a space like that to to become a kind of coherent space that people I mean I I ended up there just because I think my brother who you, whom you knew at Yale said to me at some point you really got to you know if you want to know what's going on I take your point that it wasn't the only space but I bet there weren't many of them like where that particular type of discussion was happening in that diversity of people who occupied different roles within the left were populating one thing that is true is that when I got onto Facebook doing this kind of stuff, it was not really thought of as that kind of medium. And again, it was my wife who was active in digital strategy in, in other worlds, put me onto. And the nice thing for me was that it came naturally. I'm a natural, I don't know, polemicist. But also, I like talking to people and I like listening to people. And I really do good conversation. I like conversation where everybody's like listening to each other and responding to each other. And so it didn't feel like work, honestly. And I do think there was a really good spirit there where people took ideas seriously. Like it was, you weren't there to just bullshit. Anybody could join and be a part of it. And you could get hurt. Do you remember? Because it's interesting. So the corollary that occurred to me as I was thinking about this was Tanasi Coates and his blog. Yeah. At the Atlantic and the work that he did, and he was explicit about this. And I kind of want to ask you how explicit it was, at least in your mind, what the rules were. But he was explicit in cultivating in the comment section of his blog for a number of years the particular type of community and conversation he wanted to have. He would chastise people who were not playing by the rules. He would ban them if they persisted in not playing by the rules. And so because he was willing to put in that effort to sort of cultivate the type of community that he wanted to participate in, he was able to have it. Do you remember kind of doing that, having to kind of step in periodically to sort of prune uh, or, or moderate or mitigate certain tendencies when they threaten to turn it into a space that wasn't the kind of space you wanted to, to be a part of. Yeah, definitely. I don't think I was nearly as transparent as Coates was. I come out of a union organizing background, this kind of this thing that comes naturally, like you don't just let conversation happen. You have to seed it. You have to show exercise leadership in there. There's a classic article on the tyranny of structuralistness, you know, of Joe Freeman that everybody knows. And so I had, again, a kind of an instinctive sense that you have to take an active role in this stuff. So, you know, I would intervene if I felt like people were being unfair and say, hey, no, I would sometimes just delete comments. And if it got out of hand, I would just ban people. And Again, I, I didn't. I wasn't as transparent as he was about it. I just felt like I don't want to gum up the works with the, the machinery behind the. I think work. it was clear. And I will say, as somebody who is an occasional participant, but mostly bystander, I think it was clear that you were exercising that kind of leadership. Yeah, yeah. So this is a terribly unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. The names I wrote down to stand in for the sort of big issues that your Facebook page covered, you know, during those years, are just like Obama, Trump. Sanders, Black Lives Matter. If you had to tell a story of the American left in those eight or so years when the when the Facebook page was most active, from the beginning of Obama's second term, more or less, to the end of the Trump presidency, more or less, what is the big what is the big story? I'm going to take the academic cop out, which is I think there's a couple of stories. No, that's really what I'm asking. So, I think one of them is the 
breakthrough of the left into a sense of political possibility, political seriousness, political responsibility. That second term of Obama was a very frustrating period for people who were on the left coming out of Occupy. And um, where was it going to go? Where was all that energy going to go? And of course, it exploded with the Sanders campaign, which was as a surprise to everybody who was a part of that campaign and as it you know, was to its enemies and opponents and, and all the rest of it. And it really felt, the trajectory felt like it was one of ascendancy. And that's clear, it's how I saw it for myself. And I was one of those people who absolutely thought there was not a chance in hell Trump could win. I remember, I was with you. <laughs> I remember some comment I had that in which I tried articulated my basic sense of why Trump could win and you responded affirmatively or something like that. But I remember, yeah, you were you were strong on that. Again, that he could not win. That he could not win, that he would not win. Not that he couldn't win. I mean, I think any of us who are aware of just the natural polarization of the electorate was like, well, look, anything can fucking happen, right? He could win, but would not, predictively. And so this kind of soft neoliberalism of the Democratic Party was now going to come into confrontation with a socialist left and that we were entering a period of realignment where the Republican Party and conservatism was, um, that that order was about to be smashed. After sort of overcoming the shock of Trump's election, the sort of psychic shock, the intellectual shock, very early on, it seemed to me what was most clear about Trump was how weak his presidency was. And that got me in a lot of hot water I do think we were going into one of those periodic moments of realignment in American politics where the Reagan order was coming down and the question is what was going to come out of it. I think that story obviously is is not true. I mean, I, I won't say not true because we still may be in that moment. It's just maybe taking longer than I had thought or hoped. But I think that it's raised a couple of other stories that I really did not count on. And the second story, I think, is the really sort of catastrophic weakness of the left. And by the left, I mean everybody. And I think a lot of people on the left thought, oh, well, of course, the, the Democratic Party, they're hopeless and yada, yada, yada. And I certainly felt that way, that they were, it was a weak and still feel like that. Um, but what I did not count on and have, was very slow, I think, to see was the left that I identify with, the Sanders left and the more socialist-oriented parts of the left, how weak we are. And in a way, I feel silly that I didn't see this. I should have seen it. Everything in my work pointed to it. I think when you're on the left, you're in that tension between you know, realism and possibility. And I don't want to get too fancy about this, but there's a very real danger among leftists who have a kind of structural point of view of the, the limits, that those tend to get essentialized. And it becomes a very conservative view of things that, you know, nothing is possible. Albert Hirschman has these very famous three, three modes of reactionary argument, one of which is futility. And that futilitarian tendency on the left is strong. We have not recovered from the defeats that have been handed to the left over the course of the 20th century. I'm totally fascinated by this. It may be that you've been articulating this in various places and I haven't seen it, but I'm curious how you see that manifesting. I don't imagine this is where your brain went, but where my brain went when you said that was 
where the left broke was on the shoals, in a sense, and I want to be careful about this, of like Black Lives Matter and identity politics. And then separately, they capture a lot of energies that would have seemed left-wing at some point by kind of resistance, anti-Trump politics that are not fundamentally left in their orientation. But when you say you didn't anticipate the weakness of the left, what are the manifestations of that? How do you tell that story of that revealing itself to you? I want to say up front, like, I don't think this is about identity politics or Black Lives Matter. I think this is whatever your definition of the left is. And I come, obviously, much more from the trade union part of the left. Like, all of those are catastrophically weak. We see some, you know, signs of hope in various things. But the truth of the matter is is that the lack of of organization, regardless of what your point of view is, is a real problem. My point of view has been that the right is extremely weak, and I still believe that. But the fact that despite its weakness, we can't seem to be able to break through, that the left has ceded whole parts of the country just to everlasting damnation, that it's concentrated in cities, that it has very limited outreach outside of cities, and that But most important of all, that it is in this sort of, still is in this kind of protest mode that doesn't understand, um, doesn't see the relationship between organization and and street protest and transformation. So I guess what I hear you saying is, and, and you can nuance this, is you're talking about weakness in institutions and structures and, in, and infrastructure, which is the labor movement is, you know, somewhat a shadow of its former self. So you don't have that institution. Um, maybe it's like in some places it's Democratic Party politics could be a home for the left. Um, it could be organizations, kind of mass organizations like Students for Democratic Society or the Democratic Socialists of America. It could be think tanks. It could be all of these different sort of containers within which you sort of cultivate strength and organizational capacity. And then when you reach moments where it sort of seems like the kind of national imagination and the energy is such that there's possibility for leftist change, you have all of these kind of entities and institutions and infrastructure through which you can exert power. Maybe what we had was we had some moments of that. We had Occupy, we had Black Lives Matter, we had the Bernie Sanders campaign, where the sort of potential space for change seemed to be open up, opening up in terms of the national mood and various structural things and crises and things like that. But we, that in retrospect, we simply didn't have the institutional capacity to leverage that into political change. Is that some version of the story that you're talking about? Definitely. Definitely. I would just add two things to that, but I totally agree. You know, I think the natural tendency of people who are, as Clarence Thomas would call us, part of the idealistic professions, by which he meant academics, journalists, and so forth, is to think that the problem is we don't have good ideas and policies. And my sense is that's actually not true. You know, the ideas and the policies are out there. I've been really impressed, frankly. I mean, I'm not a policy person, but the sophistication and development of an infrastructure, particularly at the municipal levels, which if you know anything about the American left historically, that's really important. You know, that's where a lot of New Dealers got their start was in cities and the kinds of things that they were doing. It's the ability to exercise power, to generate and exercise power that I just feel like we don't have. And I find it, I'll just give you a, a sense of this. You know, you remember Trump's Muslim ban and it uh, the travel ban on people. Oh. And 
the minute it was imposed, like the first or second day of his administration, there was this unbelievable flight to the airports. And it was wonderful. I remember thinking, this is like what Rousseau says, you know, in a democratic society, you you fly to the assembly anytime there's a moment. They flew to the airport, they went to the airports. And I thought, to me, it was such a sign of the weakness of the Trump regime, because if it had been Cheney and Bush, (laughs) you would never have gotten to the airports. The whole thing would have been completely on lockdown and um, it would have been impossible. So it was just a sign of how thin their side of the thing was, but we lacked the ability to turn that into something. And then the one last thing I will say, and this is just something I've been thinking about more lately, with a friend of mine, Alex Gervich, we're writing some stuff on this. But I do think the lack of workplace organizing is a real problem. And it's not the simple class versus identity or any of that kind of garbage, which I can't stand all those debates. It is that the workplace is really the space where you don't choose your, you don't choose your coworkers. It's like you're thrown into this situation. And if you want to organize, you have to overcome real differences and not just the familiar litany of differences of race and gender and ethnicity and, and religion and so forth, but differences of work style, differences of you know, where you are in the workplace. It's a real political art form. So much of people's protest experience on the left is affinity groups you know, where you join with people where you have a shared project. And that's great. And you can do quite a bit and learn quite a bit from that. But that is not the same thing as trying to learn of generating a collective in a place of people who have very few, if any, reasons to cooperate with each other and that they have to learn that process. And one of the reasons why I hate that class versus identity debate is that both sides assume that class is this homogeneous term. It's a white working class dudes. And of course, anybody who's a union organizer knows that A, that's not true. And even if you did have white working class men, a hundred of them or however many, they're not going to agree on anything. Right. So I think the lack of that experience and the discipline that experience imposes upon people, you can't walk away from it. You're forced to, to make it work in the same way that when you work at a workplace, forget unions. You're forced to make it work. You're forced to make it work. Yeah. And I feel like we've gotten out of practice out of that. And honestly, things like remote work and all the rest of it, you know, one of the reasons why a little bit concerning, and I'm a bit of a hypocrite on this because of course <laughs> I have a job where I'm by myself. And But setting that aside is you're not forced to make things work in quite the same way. So Yeah, and what I want to say is why, why, why this failure, and probably it's on the one hand, it's kind of overdetermined, on, and on the other hand, some of these things are just sort of, you know, contingent, right? And there's not a sort of structural reason for them. I mean, as you said, there was a, probably a lost generation or two of political organizing. There were big ruptures. There was ruptures between the old left and the new left. There was the defeat of the new left. So the institutional memory, the kind of muscle memory for how to do these things went away. There's the broad diminishment of the labor movement. You mentioned the phrase futilitarian earlier. I guess sometimes I think it's a kind of veiled expression of hopelessness, that people are organizing around things that are lower hanging fruit, that they don't actually believe 
that you could organize at this level across across groups, across classes, take on the power of management. And so it manifests in things that we can do, which is we can go out to the streets and protests. We can create, we can leverage the power that the cultural left has within the spaces where it exerts some kind of control to whether it's kind of control the language that people use or create DEI initiatives or things like that. There's just kind of lower resistance efforts or something like that. You said we've just kind of gotten out of practice, but what's your more sort of structural analysis of where this kind of failure arises to do the kind of organizing we would need to do to rebuild a kind of broad-based and strong left that could take advantage of these moments of opportunity. I think the destruction of the labor movement is the key thing. You know, the labor movement was the classroom for how to do democratic mass politics in the 20th century. The whole experience sit-ins of the 60s originate in sit-down strikes in the 30s. You could trace the institutional linkages, you know, and the individual figures, and there's lots of really great social histories of all of that stuff, but just also the general culture that it created. Of I don't like saying the culture of solidarity because it's such a sort of soft and fuzzy word, but, the, you know, the politics of solidarity. And there's a reason why you know, the American right went after the labor movement. They understood and both went after the labor movement and then modeled themselves on the labor movement with the development of the Christian right, um, which is not really anything comparable, I think, to what the labor movement was at its height. But nevertheless, you, could, you, you see that. I go back to that experience at Yale. We were really taught by trade unionists, real trade unionists who had a history going back to the Depression, by the way, of organizing. There's a guy named Vinnie Sarabella, who was a CIO organizer in the 30s and 40s, and through him all the way down to what we learned at, in New Haven. And the lessons we learned, the, the kinds of things of like how to build an organization, how to build leadership, that you know the goal is not to go sign up a lot of people, but to develop cadres who are going to last and be able to weather the storm. And let me say something about that. We were briefly talking in passing, you know, that Yale drive began, let's say, formally in 1991. And it won this year, what are we, 2023? I mean, those people have been there this entire time suffering through a massive turnover in the, the demographic of your workplace and so forth. That takes real structure and you know, the ability to withstand defeat and to rise up and have a new cadre of leaders carry it on. Um, those kinds of things were learned by the labor movement because you know, they were handed defeat after defeat after defeat. It's not a hospitable country to labor organizing. It's, in fact, quite a despotic country. We've been sort of dancing around the fact that we're in this sort of vaguely academic space. Those lessons don't come easily to academics who are you know, very identified with these movements. And But it's not the academics' fault, obviously. It's a big goddamn country. But you can see it. One of my disaffections with social media is what felt like a kind of building conversation became this centripetal conversation or is yeah. it centrifugal. I can never remember those. So just splattering in different directions where not only is there no, there is, there's no imperative to responsibility to building something, you get rewarded for factionalism and just blowing shit up, basically. Right. And I don't want to say that social media drives politics. I think that's too simple and too pat. But I do sometimes wonder, like, how would you actually build a kind of disciplined organization 
where you're not going to have people go on social media and shit talk every person they have disagreements with. The lack of trust, the lack of solidarity, that the corrosiveness. Yeah. Um, and the most benign reading of it is, is that the people who are on social media, they're not in it for that. They have no understanding of that. So they're not trying to undermine it, you know, because they don't have no idea if that's what you're trying to create. But my, you know, sometimes in my darker moments, I think, boy, if you thought you were creating something and you're acting this way, wow, you have no idea of the kind of discipline and trust and, and solid, real solidarity it takes to build something that will achieve power. It's interesting. I was thinking of like the New York Times and the Slack channels in the New York Times, right? And the ways that there were these years when the entire functioning of the organization seemed to be profoundly compromised by the capacity of people to just go on Slack. I mean, not just it's Slack and Twitter, right? To go on Slack and badmouth each other, to go on Twitter and badmouth each other. And I think more recently, the Times has kind of brought down the hammer in certain respects on that and an expectation. But I'm not sure like the fundamental lessons are that different, whether you're talking about a left-wing organization or just a kind of establishment organization like the New York Times or the right, which is that if you want to have an effective organization that exerts power or even exerts control over its own strategy within a larger landscape, you have to have some fundamental understanding of how you maintain solidarity and maintain strategic direction and prevent factionalization and infighting and all and things like that. One of the mistakes in the left, and it's probably not a causal mistake, it's probably more a sort of downstream mistake of the left over the last 10 or 20 years, is there doesn't seem to be much of an understanding about how to do that in a strategic fashion. Yeah. Right. But down to like the sort of consensus driven policies or lack of policies of how Occupy operated and things like that, or the deliberate leaderlessness of Black Lives Matter and all of these things, right? I mean, that's a... Yeah, and I, I wouldn't even point to that. I mean, just look at the way leading figures of the Democratic Party act on social media, and not just to the Republican Party, but among themselves. I do feel like I've had a change of... Because when social media first happened, it was like a breath of fresh air. I mean, I find myself in this weird position because I grew up during the 80s and 90s, when everything was so buttoned up and, and um, you know, locked down. And what I loved about social media was that it opened things up. And there were, I loved the younger academics and journalists and activists who didn't practice the same kind of manners of obeisance and, you know, respectability, essentially. And it was great. And I still believe that. Now, I think your analogy with the Times is right, because trade unions come out of the workplace and they learn the discipline of cooperation through work in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then they translate that into a more oppositional and that making that transition from cooperation to confrontation while still keeping a sense of solidarity and cooperation, like how, that's an art. It doesn't mean you can shut down disagreement. Of course not. You couldn't have an organization if you did. But the kind of sense of the the sort of free-for-all and the sort of licensed cruelty toward people who you're you know, sitting right next to, essentially, but you're not looking eye to eye at, I find it shocking, to be honest with you, because I think, how in the world do you think you're going to ever build anything? If, I mean, look, you study the history of the American right and how it came out of the left, but just imagine, you know, a Whitaker Chambers break every fucking day, you know, a Soviet, a Nazi Soviet pact that forces everybody to go 
to the mattresses every day. Yeah, and right. that's that's what you you get one or two of those massive controversies over the course of a lifetime if you want to hold it together. Right. We're having them on a daily basis, and of course, <laughs> there's two things that will come of that. One of two options. One is everything falls apart. The other is nothing matters anymore. Words don't mean anything. I think part of my disaffection is more the latter, honestly, because people would be extraordinarily cruel and then act like nothing had happened. And it's kind of a funhouse atmosphere where I don't think you can build as much. So uh, this is probably a good place to end. If I were asking you the question that, you know, my brother answered for me nine or so years ago when he sent me over to your page and I was saying, hey, where do I go? to sort of be hip to what's happening on the intellectual left, what's the answer? Well, I mean, I tend to now just use social media as a way of finding good articles. I feel like there's a real efflorescence of political economy on Substack. There's a group of younger writers, people like Tim Barker, Andrew Elrod, Josh Mason. These are people who are really thinking about inflation from a left-wing perspective. And they argue on Twitter. I follow some of their Twitter accounts. To me, I think I'm not looking to find a conversation anymore. I'm just switching gears. I'm writing a new book and I feel like I'm having to teach myself all this stuff. And so I want to read the people who have something to tell me. So I'm less interested in having a back and forth about what to do, what is to be done, than I am in trying to understand stuff. But so... I'm probably not the best person to ask the question yeah. because I don't think I'm looking for that anymore. Well, it's interesting thinking about this sort of arc of things, right? So you're talking about the eighties and nineties, and that was a period of time where it was actually fairly easy to sort of pinpoint where the conversation was happening because it was a very limited number of places, very limited number of publications, right? And that was frustrating in an enormous number of ways, right? But it was clear. And then you had the sort of period of the kind of the early sort of blogosphere, the prime of the blogosphere, where it would be a much broader much broader network of places, you know, and then there's that period of, you know, when social media, when Twitter and Facebook were still places where some kind of coherent conversation could be happening. And then I think where there's where we are now, where that's just utterly fragmented, basically, for a variety of reasons. But then there's this thing happening with newsletters, whether it's Substack, where there's a lot of interesting voices and it's clearly a new thing and it's evocative in certain ways of the early blogosphere. What has not coalesced yet, I think, is the conversation, right? So it's like really interesting voices are emerging in the way that they did in the early blogosphere, but for a variety of reasons, it doesn't seem like it's manifesting in some sort of platform where people are talking to each other. And again, like you said, maybe it's happening and you and I in our middle age are just not the ones who are kip to it. My sense is, you know, if it's happening, it's very kind of incipient. And it's like, maybe when you and I know about it, well, when will be when we know that it's really happening over. I was going to give us more credit than that is when it's really happening, when it's maybe when it's over. But I guess, you know, this is always a question, like more broadly, like, where is the left, right? So, okay, that's what your our answer is, the kind of intellectual left as a there's places there's jacobin there's dissent there's places where people are publishing there's still the nation but i don't think either of us feels like there's a hot spot in terms of a sort of where the terms are being defined for the next kind of 
whatever the next dispensation is in a sort of intellectual sense. But broadly, in the more broad infrastructure sense that you were talking about, where is the left right now? Is it certain unions? Is it certain organizations? Is it certain city governments? I don't know. I don't have any idea. I think you're, at a minimum, you're more hip to these things than I am. Yeah, I mean, I think there are, interestingly, New York State and New York City, which I, was a backwater for so many years, despite being perceived as the mecca of the left. You used to really want to go out to Los Angeles and places like that to find out what was really happening. I do think something interesting is happening in New York, which is really trying to take on the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party in New York State is a disaster. And it's been very conservative for a long time, right? And, it, and, and rather corrupt at various points. And yeah. Yeah. And there, I think you have a real group of DSA people who are winning office. Also Pennsylvania, by the way, same thing is happening. And you know, these are often at the state level and the city level. And I've, I was never one who was big on, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom and local politics and all that kind of stuff. But the truth of the matter is that those people are really, I mean, they're not getting catapulted like the way AOC did, but they're coming in her wake. And they are building cohorts and cadres to take on real institutional blockages and I have to believe that some of the long-term energy is going to come in part from them. In terms of the social movement front, that I feel less certain about. I'm interested watching these these DSA people really take on state legislatures in very high-bound places. And then, of course, I always come back to those teacher strikes in 2019. Chicago... No, 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 no. The red state teacher strikes in Oklahoma, oh. West Virginia. I know they've been completely lost to memory. <laughs> I forgot about this, yeah. But to me, that was a real sign because those are people winning in red states. COVID obviously set us back on, on that front quite a bit. But those people, I have to believe, just didn't go, you know, it's like what we said after 9-11. Obviously, those WTO people didn't just go away because they came back 10 years later, even stronger. Now, I have to believe stuff is happening at that level. And, you know, we'll, we'll see. What's the new book on? Capitalism. It's called King Capital on the sort of monarchic, dynastic, aristocratic tendencies of capitalism. So I'll have you back on in, what, five years? When <laughs> if I'm lucky. <laughs> Corey, this was great. Thank you so much. I Thank appreciate you. it. I really enjoyed yeah. it. It's good to chat. We'll keep on keeping on. Good, good luck with the book. Thanks. Take right. care. See you. Bye-bye. This was an episode of Eminent Americans, the podcast. If you liked the podcast, subscribe to it uh, and subscribe to the newsletter of the same name, Eminent Americans, the newsletter. Recommend it to your friends. Rate it on the platform on which you listen to it. Beam good vibes about it out into the universe. Thank you to my producer, Nick Worthen, and thank you to you, my listeners. This is a labor of love for me, and I do genuinely appreciate your attention, particularly if you've gotten all the way here to the end of all things. Feel free to email me with questions, thoughts, observations, even diatribes at djops at gmail.com. That's D as in Daniel, J as in James, ops as in ops or Oppenheimer at gmail.com. Have a great day. 